We uh, have been traveling in the Gospels. For one, I love it. I, I never get uh, enough of just preaching, studying, reading, praying through the Gospels. We've taken a particular uh, route in that we have uh, been looking at the parables of our Lord and Savior, these uh, earthly stories with heavenly meetings. Today it is the parable of the two sons. Life is a matter of choices, and every choice you make then ends up making you. One philosopher said it this way, he said, choices are the hinges of destiny. And for the most part, we and we alone are responsible for our choices, and therefore the consequences we must own. Today we're going to follow the story of two sons, one outwardly successful, the other not so much, and the surprising choices that each made that affected their eternity. The parable of the two sons. Well, for those of you who are older, you will call this message, My Two Sons. There was a young boy who lived in the country, his family had to use an outhouse. You know, when we moved first onto this property, uh, the only um, bathroom we had was an outhouse out here. And since I spent a lot of time out here working, uh, I had to use it, obviously, quite often. But uh, I tell you what, I hated to use it, especially when the men of the church were around, because they took that as an opportunity to shake it, throw rocks at it. You name it, they got their chance to get at the preacher. There was a young boy who lived in the country. He had to use an outhouse, which the boy hated. In the summer, it was hot, and winter, it was cold, and it was always smelly. The outhouse was located near a creek, and so the boy decided that he would push it into the water. He was tired of that thing. So after one particular spring rain, the creek swelled, and so the boy just pushed it into the creek. Later that night, his dad said, son, uh, you and I need to make a little trip. I want you to meet me out at the woodshed. The boy knew what that meant. He meant that meant punishment. He asked his father, to which his dad replied, because somebody pushed the outhouse into the creek. And I think that somebody was you, was it? The boy responded, yeah, it was, dad. But he said, remember when George Washington's father asked him, if he had chopped down the cherry tree, he didn't get into trouble because he told the truth. That is correct, the dad said. But his father was not in the cherry tree when he cut it down. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that son had to pay the consequences for his choices, for sure. And we're going to talk about consequences today and the choices we make. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into this wonderful passage. And Lord, as we come to the end of these parables, Lord, I feel a little bit saddened. But Lord, I look forward to you, Holy Spirit, leading us on our next journey. Bless us today, Lord. Today, Lord, is a day of days. It's a day of choices for each one of us. Help us to get that truth in Jesus' name. Let's go to Matthew 21, if you would, please, the parable of the two sons. Now, our Lord Jesus did not have an easy ministry. 
Sometimes I've felt like my ministry has had some challenges, but I'll tell you one thing, nothing when you compare it to the ministry of our wonderful prophet and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he was 12 years old, he was embroiled with false theologians in the temple, and they were yakking at him. Then he spent the rest of his earthly years in satanic-inspired controversy after controversy. If it wasn't some religious false religious leader dogging his steps, it was some political puppet who was looking to appease some group hindering his way. Now, we're going to uh, look at the last week of the earthly ministry of our Savior, and we're going to see this great story and how it unfolds. There are at least five important truths I want to leave with you this morning. First of all, we sense a disrespectful examination. Let's look at verse 23. In fact, uh, let's read it together, if you would, please, uh, out of the King James Version. Ready? Begin. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority dost thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? The very minute he comes to Jerusalem, he's attacked. Now, we think that this was in the afternoon because uh, earlier in the chapter, we have a little story of him waking up hungry, and he uh, wanted some breakfast. And if he's anything like me, he wanted some eggs and some turkey sausage, and that's what he had. That's what I have 365 days out of the year, and uh, that's what Jesus probably wanted, but... Uh, he didn't get that, and so he was walking along, and he saw a fig tree. He figured, well, I'll settle for a fig newton, and uh, he reaches over to get a fig from that tree, and there's no figs on the tree, and Jesus uses that as an opportunity to teach how that uh, if you're a tree, you ought to bear some fruit, and he talks about Israel. Well, immediately, and we don't read that he got any food, <laughs> poor guy. So he wakes up, he's hungry, he wants to eat something, he settles for a fig, but he doesn't even get a fig. He walks from Bethany, where he had spent the night with his dear friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus there. And so he then comes to Jerusalem. And the first thing that he does, he heads for McDonald's to get a, get a burger, but no, the Bible says that the first thing he does is he comes to the temple, straight to the temple, because that's where the action was. He wanted to be around God's people, and he loved God's Word. You know, some people I know, that, that's the last thing they want. They don't want church. I mean, you can't find them anywhere close to a church. In fact, in their minds, if they ever came to church, a roof would fall in on them, but not Jesus. Boy, he loved church. He loved God's people. And so we find here that he's teaching the Word of God. People were listening to him, people who were old. They had heard the Word of God for years, and yet they still love to hear the Word of God. And I just commend each of you here, those of you that are young and those that are old, we're never too old to keep learning the Word of God, for sure. And so there they were. He was uh, teaching the Word of God, and then in all places, in church, the demons show up. And sometimes people say, well, man, I can't believe someone broke into a car 
and uh, stole something out of that car at church. I say, you know what, if, if I was a demon, if I was the devil, I would try to do everything I could to hurt the church. That's exactly where he wants to show up, and he's always after God's people. Well, here in the church service, while he's teaching, the devil, the demons, just go over there and poke somebody, and they get this animosity going on in their spirit. It's always a strange thing to be speaking, and you get a sense that somebody out there, or maybe you can see it on their face, sometimes you don't even get to see it, but somebody's just angry at the things that are going on. And that's a funny thing, and I'll say this, if, if you're hearing the preaching of God's Word and you've got an angry spirit, then you might want to wonder this morning what spirit you're listening to. And so the spirit, these demons are stirring up these people. And so these false religions, uh, teachers stand up and they challenge the preaching, the pure preaching of the Word of God. And what a tragic thing, really, when you think about it, to not only distract the preacher with the accusations, but then to hurt the people by just uh, bringing up all kinds of stuff that has no business at that forum. I mean, it could have done it in a whole other place, could have done it, and of course, all of it was just a big ruse anyway. But notice what it says, and as is typical, it was characterized by a whole lot of disrespect. Very few people know how to make a wise appeal, and these fellows definitely did not. They stand up there, and they look at Jesus, and they said, who gave you the authority to stand in this temple and teach the Word of God? Really, in a sense, here's what they were really saying. I mean, just a day or two ago, you ride into Jerusalem like some kind of king. People are waving the palm branches. They're throwing their garments before you like you're a, uh, they're coronating some kind of king. Then you come into the temple, you drive out people who are lawfully selling things here in the temple. They still were not over that. And then now you are teaching all this new doctrine. And uh, Jesus, of course, the doctrine of Jesus was not new. It was, in fact, old. It was from the beginning of time. It was their doctrine who had gotten so far from the truth that now any time that was truth was really being preached, it seemed like something new. And then they falsely acclaimed to be the authority. We are the authority, and you don't have the authority to do what you're doing. Of course, it was all just a ruse. They were trying to move the goalpost, you know. They were just trying to change the rules on what God had already stated. Now, what was their issue? Well, here's the deal. If Jesus should refuse to answer them of who his authority was, then they would insinuate to the people, aha, there you go. The fact that he's not answering shows he must be guilty. His tacit um, uh, speaking would then be accused of being something sinful. Should he say that his authority was from God, then they would say, well, then if your authority is from God... We demand that you show a miracle right now. We demand that you prove yourself to be from God. And my friends, this kind of crazy charade plays out daily in America. People who become their self-made authorities criticize anybody who is teaching the truth. The left-wing San Francisco-loving media today is always twisting anything that has to do with a conservative bent. And that's what these folks were doing here. Jesus was a Bible-loving, 
truth-speaking man, and these guys were twisting what he was doing. Disrespectful for sure. Not only a disrespectful examination, but then notice a discerning explanation from our Savior. Verse 24 and 25a. You can't fool God. And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will in likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he asks this question that to us might seem kind of strange, but to them it was a, it was a stumper. The baptism of John, verse 25, the baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? Now, Jesus declined to give them a direct answer. Rather, he answers their question with a question. Now, it's true, this was a typical Hebrew rabbinical way of talking. They would often answer questions with questions, and that was kind of the way they debated. But really, Jesus was being very wise here. He's not being evasive. He was not being cute. In fact, he owed them nothing. They were not his authority. They were just uh, fellow uh, teachers, uh, albeit false ones. Their authority didn't, uh, had nothing and no sway over him. But he also knew this. There are some people you can't give the truth because he knew they would twist it. And that's what Jesus said. He said, you know, with some people, you don't give them the truth. Because if you do it, it's like throwing pearls in front of a bunch of pigs. They just uh, won't know what to do with it. They'll uh, eat it and spit it out. Whatever the case is, they don't understand how beautiful it is. And so uh, he tells them, he said, nah, you know, I'm not going to give you the truth. And over the years, I've, you know, as you get older, you kind of realize there are some folks that you give them a biblical answer and they weren't wanting a biblical answer because they had an agenda. And so you realize, you know what, these folks, you just can't give the Bible. You just have to make a decision or you have to live a certain way and just move on. And that's what Jesus knew the deal was here. And so he asked a question to them. He said, uh, was John the Baptist baptism, or you might just say was his ministry, was his ministry from God or was his ministry from man? Now, if his ministry was of God, then that meant something because nobody was a bigger supporter that Jesus was the Messiah than John the Baptist. You remember he was the voice crying in the wilderness and he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God or God who takes away the sins of the world. He was a supporter of Jesus Christ as Messiah. And so for them to deny, for them to say that John was from God, then they would have to say, well, if he's from God, then everything he said about Jesus must be true. If they said he wasn't from God, then they would risk the ire of the people because the people really held John the Baptist in high esteem. He was a tremendous leader among them. And so they would lead, as typical, by the pole. And they would want to make sure that they kept the people happy. We find a discerning explanation by Jesus. Number three, a deceitful consideration by these false leaders, starting in verse 25, part B, and they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say unto him of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. 
And they answered Jesus and said, we cannot tell. And he said unto them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. You see, we very clearly, these men were not out for the truth. They were out to push an agenda. I say they were not out for the truth. They were out to push an agenda. And we see that playing out every day in the media, don't we? People that don't want the truth, they just want an agenda to be pushed forth. They said, we'll lose credibility if we acknowledge John the Baptist, but reject Jesus. And so they fell into that trap of political correctness. We'll lose our position. We'll lose our money. We'll lose public sentiment. The fear of man brings a snare. And they were boycotted in the snare for sure. And so they confess. We cannot tell. A lie. (laughs) What a big fat lie. You cannot tell. You don't have a clue. I have no clue whether his ministry was from God or not. Oh, no, you were very well assured of his ministry from God. The answer was, I cannot, no, I will not. I will not say because you're afraid. You're afraid of the people. You're afraid of uh, my ministry. No, you, you were just lying. Very deceitful, these men, false teachers. Then uh, number four this morning, a damning declaration. In verse number 28, he now tells a story about choices. Choices. We all have choices in life. You'd say, well, I, uh, I'm just not going to make a choice about God. Well, you made your choice because no choice is a choice. Many people today say, well, I can't decide whether Jesus is God or whether the Hindu is right or the Muslim or I don't know which religion. Well, then you've already made your choice. Because Jesus said, you either love me or you hate me. You're either of the Father or you're not of the Father. No choice is a choice. Verse number 28, now he tells the story. The story that is one of those well-known stories has so many applications. But what think ye? Don't you love that? Jesus wasn't against people thinking. Now, I know people in the left wing want to say that all those Christians, you know, those Bible-believing people, they aren't thinkers. I tell you what, they're the only ones that really do think, the fact is. What think ye? He said, I want you to think about this. And you know, when we're talking to people about the Lord, it's certainly nothing wrong with asking a question to people. I want you to answer this question. What think ye? A certain man had two sons. A man has two sons. Same father, two sons. And he came to the first And he said, son, go work today in my vineyard. Uh, Work? (laughs) That's a four-letter word, dad. (laughs) Work? And, uh, you know, that's uh, one of the tragedies we see in America today with all these snowflakes coming up and uh, not working. I thank God for the home church parents. I will tell you that. We have the hardest working young people. It's amazing to me. Thank God for them. And uh, he... He said, son, go out and work. You mean work in the vineyard? That sounds like work. It is work. I mean, you've got to make sure the weeds are out so they don't suck that nutrition and the water. They didn't have a lot of water. They made to make sure all those weeds are gone. That meant uh, out there hoeing and shoveling. Then they had to make sure you tie up all the vines. You had to cut any extra 
The vines also didn't have all that uh, juice going into other things but the grapes. And so there's a lot of work. They had to spray it uh, so the pest wouldn't get on it. They had to dung it. They had to throw, you know, manure down there so that, that uh, soil would become rich. I mean, it was a lot of work. Son, go work in the vineyard. <laughs> Dad, don't you have servants for that? I'm a, shouldn't I be driving my Lamborghini, Dad? I mean, you're a landowner. No, son, go out there and work today. Not next week, not next month. Not next year, not uh, when you're, you know, 16, or not when you're 18, or today's uh, society, not till you're 25, you know, just play games and watch your Nintendo, play your Nintendo and your Game Boy until you're 25, no, go out there and work. I mean, I, who knows how old these boys were, but uh, they were, in our case, uh, as soon as Luke turned to eight years old, I had him out there mowing that lawn. I might have even been seven. Of course, if you hear him, he'll tell us, he'll tell you he was four or three years old or something like that. But uh, you'd say, eight years old? Look, if it, well, I'd, I'd watch him, you know. And the worst day, of course, was when then Nathan had to take over and poor kid, he had to take over. But then when Nathan left the house, I made the girls do it. And uh, so, uh, all right, Abigail, out there and mow that lawn. But dad, I have a little girl. It doesn't make no difference, girl. Get out there and mow that lawn. And uh, they need to learn to work. Son, go work today in the vineyard. That's hard work. And he said, I will not. I will not. Woo, such insolence, impertinent. How can you imagine? I will not work in the vineyard. I am not a vineyard worker. Ah, but afterward, he repented. He changed his mind, and he went. The, what the Bible doesn't say was that the father hit him upside the head. And, uh, but anyway, no, we don't do that to our children. And, uh, but he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he repented after the kick in the pants and went. Verse 30, and he came to the second and said likewise, Son, go out and work in the vineyard. Now, this son was a smooth talker. He was a slime ball. He was, a, he was slick willy. And uh, he answered and said, I go, sir. Oh, of course I'll go, Dad. And it's just as soon as I finish this game, I'll be out there in that vineyard. You can count on me. I'll be out there, Dad. And uh, so there he goes. I'll be out there. Dad said, no, <laughs> go out in that vineyard. And the son said, of course I will, sir. Now the first one said, I'm not going. He was just a rotten, rotten kid. The second one was a, he was slick willy. Sir, oh, precious father of mine who gave birth to me, who has supported me all my life, wonderful father of mine, great sir, I respect you so much. Big talker, but it says he went not. Now, Jesus said, what think you? Now, there are two sons, one father. Did you know that uh, all in this world have God as their father? Now, sometimes uh, a lost person will tell me, he will say, well, you know, God is, uh, God, 
all of us belong to God. Well, uh, all of us were created by God. All of us uh, have God as the creator in that uh, He reigns on the just and the unjust. But not all of us have Him as a heavenly Father. They all have the same dead. Yet there's a huge difference in the relationship. Notice there's the same command. Son, go work today in my vineyard. In my vineyard. Now, some have uh, suggested that this might uh, mean that we're supposed to work for our salvation. You can't expect that just a little prayer of faith is going to get us to heaven. I mean, you've got to be baptized. You've got to speak in some unknown language or something, or you've got to give certain uh, amount of money, no? When Jesus is talking about working, He's talking about the work of faith. And that's a good thing to write down, the work of faith. Or, as the great Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, that there's a flaming vengeance on those that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes people say, wait, what a second? I have to obey the gospel? I have to obey to go to heaven? Yes, there is an actual obedience. But the obedience is simply repenting and receiving. In order to go to heaven, I must obey the command to repent. By the way, this is one reason why God is just to send people to hell. Because a person that refuses to repent is is disobedient. God doesn't send people who aren't disobedient. Uh, He wouldn't send them to hell. But every person who refuses to repent is disobedient. Therefore, He is just to send someone to hell. We must repent. We must receive Jesus Christ. Repent of our sin, receive Jesus Christ. That is the work of the gospel. That is obeying the gospel. Now, both sons made a different choice. The first said, I will not, but repented. He had a change of mind. His mind said, I'm not going, but then his heart made the choice to go. Someone once wisely said, you know, the difference between heaven and hell is only 18 inches. I remember hearing that the first time. I thought, what? The difference between heaven and hell is only 18 inches? Then the preacher explained it further. He said, it's 18 inches from the head to the heart, meaning many people have Jesus in their brain. They have God on their mind, but they don't have Jesus in their heart. Jesus in our heart is what gets us to heaven, and that's what this man, he said uh, he believed the Father, but he didn't have him in his heart and in his soul. And I want you to notice how gracious the Father was to the first son. Now, if I had been that father and my son had said to me, I'm not going in the vineyard. I would say, now even if I, if I had let him go, I'd tell you one thing, I wouldn't be as gracious as his father was. But he let him come back. But the other son was all talk and no walk. He was nice. He showed his respect. He said, uh, sir, to him. But uh, he, and by the way, it's interesting how God Uh, talks about the first group. Notice uh, what he calls them here. Um, Well, we'll look at that in a minute. But um, I will not. And then he said, I'll go. The other one said, uh, I'll I'll go, Father. And boy, he was all talk. 
He was religion, but no further. He said, but he had no doing. Two vastly different things. I remember talking with one particular man one time, and I asked him if he knew about God. He said, yes. I said, do you know about Jesus? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian? He said, yes. But somehow, maybe the lifestyle that he was leading, somehow the way he was answering, I got the sense that uh, he was used to religion, a religion that included God, a religion that included Jesus, but he really didn't have a personal relationship with God. I remember trying to get past that and saying, are you born again? I'm born again. I was thinking, how in the world? I just get this sense in my spirit. He didn't understand what it meant to be saved to really be a Christian. And finally, I asked him a question I'd heard someone say once. And I said, well, let me ask you this then. If you were to be standing before God and you were embracing eternity, what answer would you give God to this question? Why should I let you into heaven? And that really boiled it down. And he said, well, I have been a good person. Ah. You don't understand salvation. Because if you think that that's going to make Jesus, God, just open the gates of heaven and say, great, you're a good person, come on in. That's not what happens. And that's what's going on here. Sometimes people have a religion, but they don't have a relationship. And so Jesus makes a very clear declaration that unless you accept Christ as your Savior, there is an eternity away from God. A disrespectful examination, a discerning explanation, a deceitful consideration, a damning declaration, and then number five, a very diverse application. These two sons had wildly different ends. Look at verses 31 and verse 32. It has been said that we are free to make any choice we want, but what we're not free to choose is the results. Verse 31, whether of them twain, or which one of them, of these two, did the will of his Father. They say unto him, the first, Jesus saith unto them, verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. <laughs> There's that phrase I was mentioning a moment ago. He said, publicans and harlots. That's just kind of a euphemism for the scum. <laughs> The scum of society amazingly get to go to heaven, and those who are the uppity-ups and the religious types don't get to go. And I'm sure this blew these religious leaders away. Jesus said unto you, the publicans, these tax collectors, these uh, ones who were extortioners really, and uh, those that were immoral, they go into the kingdom of God. Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. Now he brings back the tremendous ministry of John the baptizer. He said, John came unto you in the way of righteousness. Nobody had a ministry of righteousness more than John the Baptist. Thank God for men like John the Baptist. Thank God for women who have that ministry of righteousness who you can count on, they are going to preach the Word of God. They are going to sing about God. They are going to, they're going to give God all the praise. He came unto you in the way of righteousness. You could count on it. When you heard John the Baptist, he was going to preach the Word. You could count on it. When John the Baptist preached, he would bring people to repentance. You could count on it. 
His lifestyle was a lifestyle of righteousness. His preaching, his ministry was all about righteousness. He said, and uh, you believed him not. And that says something. If you got somebody preaching the word, you may not agree with every little in and out, every little point here and there, every little uh, crossing of the T or dotting of the I, but I tell you one thing, you know a person that's from God. John came into you in the righteousness of God, but you believed him not. Strangely, however, you who were say you believe the Bible, you who memorize much of the Torah, those of you who walk around in your big religious outfits, those of you who always pretend to be religious, you should have known and sensed when somebody was right, when they were from God. But you wouldn't believe John the Baptist. But here, these publicans and harlots, the, the scum, the, the off-scouring, the losers of society, the, the social outcasts, the publicans and harlots believed him. I mean, he had a ministry of people getting saved from the, the uh, dregs of life. And ye, when you saw it, you still repented not. I mean, you heard him preach. That should have been enough. You saw the work that he did. That should have been enough. You watched his life. That should have been enough. Then when you saw people getting transformed by the grace of God, you should have known this man was from God. But afterward, even after you had seen it, you repented not, and you still did not believe. There again is the gospel. You must repent and believe. Two sides of the same coin. You have a little dime here. You have a head on one side and tail on the other. It's one coin, but it's two sides, and that's the gospel. You repent of our sin, that's not enough. We've got to take Jesus. Some people take Jesus, but it's not enough. You've got to repent. Two sides of the same coin. Here it says, repented and believing. And so here he was, the first son in the parable. The first son was a social loser. This was a person who was one rude dude. He was not a good person, bad-mannered. This person was a son who was insolent, impertinent. This person was a druggie. This person was a drunk. This person was just lazy. This was a person who just lived up their life. And I mean, they were just not nice people. They were not the nice people in society. That's the first son. You got to understand that in a very big picture, the, if we want to get the real exact interpretation of this parable, God is referring to us Gentiles as the first son. And the second son is as the people of Israel. People of Israel who had been given the oracles of God and who had been given prophets for all these years who should have been able to understand when something was right. Really, we're the first son. Those in the Gentile world, there they were. But all these people in a very particular way, were just the off-scouring of society, and yet they were getting saved. The other son had a profession, and yet they fought against. Why? Because they were trained at ignoring the facts of Scripture, because it didn't fit with their mindset. It didn't fit with their money they were getting in for the people. They had controlled the people with fear. These false teachers had controlled the people with their false teaching, and they had gotten position, and their lifestyles were pretty uh, posh, and they, uh, they liked what they had there. But uh, now Jesus was challenging that 
And so they knew they needed to change the people's minds. They didn't care about the truth of God. Now there were a few that got saved, like Nicodemus. There were a few that got saved, but not many. Here, they were trained at ignoring the facts. And you know, I remember, and I not mean to be critical here, but I will tell you there is a, always this underlying anti-God, anti-Christian sentiment. And every week in different places, even in a little town or in a city, there are people training others how to reject God and how to reject Jesus Christ. You can go up the street and you can go to the kingdom hall and they will actually teach their people how to reject Jesus Christ. I mean, actually teach them. Here's what you say when you meet a Christian. Here's what you do when a Christian starts talking to you. They train them. You can go over here to the Muslim uh, uh, whatever they call them, temple or Muslim mosque, and you can go there, and uh, they will actually, in the building, they will stand there and teach the people how to train against Christians. They tell them what to say. And the reason you know that is because if you're ever out there very much, they all say the same thing. So they're very obviously being trained. They all say the same thing. They say the same way to retort to you, and that's what these guys were like, these false teachers. They were trained to reject the truth, and they were more afraid of what their friends would say than the truth of God. What a sad place to be, ashamed of what culture would say. But false religion is not the only people that train others to reject Christianity or reject God. In academia today, you can go down here to the University of the Pacific. A university that was founded by God-blessed, sacrificial Methodists 150 years ago, people who were spiritual, wonderful, godly people, founded a university to teach the Bible, and yet now it is a hotbed along with the whole university system in California, really, across America, to teach a anti-Christian sentiment. Actually teach them. And of course, it's gone over from just into the religious departments, into the science departments to be actively anti-Christian. And we see it everywhere we go. That's what these guys were involved in. They were just actively rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you're like the second son. You talk big. You talk wonderful. You're nice on the outside, you're respectable, but you are far away from God. Thank God for the publicans and the harlots who, they may be the scum, but I'll tell you one thing, they know truth when they hear it, and they accept truth, and they don't have any airs about them, and they accept the things of God. And today we have so many people that have airs about them, maybe because of education, Maybe because of their religion, maybe because of their class, or maybe because of their job, or maybe because of their uh, sports abilities, or their social standing, or their gender, or whatever it is. And they just say, no, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. Here we find the story of the two sons. One that admits and says, I'm, I'm, no, I'm bad. <laughs> I need Jesus. But the other more, uh, more interested in their standing, more interested in their finances, more interested in where they're going next, more interested in what their friends say. All those Pharisees would meet together, making sure each one would 
you know, uh, support each other and not break rank and make sure that they would help each other. Um, folks, every day you wake up, tomorrow morning when you wake up, there is a, there is a dangerous conspiracy that's going to try to take your mind. It's going to try to lead you down a path of error. It's on the radio. You're going to turn on and hear a song. I tell you what, you, honestly, I don't listen to secular music very often, but sometimes you go to a grocery store or you'll sit at a restaurant and you'll hear some of the stuff that goes on. You're like, man, that is just out and out crazy. I mean, just truth, anti-God truth. And you hear it coming from the media every day and every single day. When you wake up tomorrow morning, in fact, before you get home, you'll probably hear something that will be a lie. And it's good. this lie is from Satan, and the son, the you're, we got to decide whether I'm going to be a son that sees truth and accepts it, or I'm going to be a son that says no. Even I don't care what John the Baptist was like. I don't care what the truth is like. I've got my people. I've got to make sure I keep my people happy. I've got to make sure I, I'm one of the sons that reject God. Now, as I was going through this uh, uh, message. I realized there are two very definite lingering lessons, and I want to leave them with you. And I'm going to hijack uh, some uh, popular quotes. The first one is this, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that is uh, an old uh, quote, I think, from the early 1900s, I think, about a political decision that was made in America. But I think it's a great one because it reminds us of uh, that uh, it's very possible to let good intentions go by the wayside. People with good intentions make promises, but people with good character keep those promises. Let's just take the high road for a second. Let's uh, say that the second son never intended to neglect God. Now, in the case of these religious leaders, I'm afraid that they did. But let's just take the high road and say that they really didn't want to do that. They just got caught up. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's myself. Is there something today that you need to do? You've been putting off a decision you need to make? Now, some of you have no question about what God wants you to do, but you're afraid to do it, maybe because it's difficult. But I will tell you this, if God is asking you to do something, you can be sure God will take care of all the details. I don't think anybody intends to have a bad marriage. I mean, I don't think they stood up here at the altar or out there in the prayer forest or Morris Chapel or wherever you get married. I don't think anybody stands on the beach in that lovely moment with the intention of having a bad marriage. And yet, why are there then so many rocky relationships? That's because they intended to pray together, but they don't. They intended to go to church together and serve God, but they let other things get in the way. They intended to have a good marriage and spend time with each other. They intended to, but they just never got around to it. They intended to. There are others that are here in the building this morning, and I don't think anybody ever intends not to serve God, or they don't intend not to get close to God, and yet so many just can't seem to find time to be in the Word of God or to find their burning bush like Moses who was, drew near to God. We rationalize it away. We say this or that, and of course, Christians are good at rationalizing even our sin. And today, in this uh, day and age, it's the term, I was born this way. I was uh, getting a drink at Starbucks the other day, and um, I noticed that it was uh, 
national month for them, a born this way campaign. I'm born this way. I can sin regardless of what God says because I'm born this way. And we can rationalize anything with this born this way or this victim mentality. But the fact is, all of our intentions, we need to change those from I'll try to I will by the grace of God. I will have a good marriage by the grace of God. I will draw close to God by the will of God. I will, by the grace of God, I'm going to commit my marriage. Good intentions are wonderful. Folks, we got to do something about them. we got to commit our family to the Lord, our, our jobs to the Lord, our school to the Lord, our work to Christ. Good intentions are great, but the road to hell is paved with them. What a sad thing this man here ended up in hell because he talked big, but he did little. Number one, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But there is a second, and I think very lingering lesson as I went through this. Certainly the primary interpretation is about the Gentiles and the Jews. I think also it's a great reminder of salvation by works and grace. But I think the lingering lesson number two is this, it's better late than never. Better late than never. Now the first son was a loser, and yet by God's grace he became a winner. And with God, it's amazing. It's never too late. No matter what we've done, it is never too late. And that is a lesson that Jesus is trying to remind us here. He said, I don't care if you've been a, uh, I almost said Republican. I don't care if you've been a publican. You can be saved. I don't care if you have had a life of sin, of immorality. You can be saved. You can have a new life. Now, here he is. You'd say, well, would God welcome me? Oh, yes. How do, I, how do I know that God would forgive me? Here's how I know. Because God sent His only Son to die for me. And if He would do that, then I know He would accept me. That's the whole point. That's what He's there. He's a second chance God. He's a third chance God. He's a fourth chance God. You say, well, Pastor, you have no idea how rotten I've been, how much crazy stuff I've done, I would tell you this, that it makes no difference. How many times we've blown it, fallen into sin, God is, a, is there, and He's trying to remind us that God, with God, it's never too late, ever. Hogwash. God never is too late. We'd say, well, uh, I'll never have a happy life. Maybe you've lost your virtue, or maybe you've lost someone you love. Maybe you've lost a good job, or maybe because of stupid mistakes, you've lost your house, or lost your car, or your finances are just in a wreck. But with God, it's never too late. You'd say, well, I've been a druggie. I've been an alcoholic. Can God still forgive me? Oh, you better believe it. With God, it's never too late. We have to be willing to say, God, I come. I come to you. I'm here. And that's the story of this uh, lesson here today, that even though we've been a harlot or, or a publican, uh, an extortioner, a thief, God says it's never too late to come back to God. I'll close this morning with a, just a, an insightful and uh, intriguing, even um, humorous uh, story I'd read from a pastor. He was in the South, and like any good Southerner, he loved ribs. And there was a particular place not far from him that uh, was uh, offering uh, all the ribs you could eat. And 
Boy, they got in the car and they ran down there and they got in that place. And if you've ever been to one of those all-you-can-eat places, especially ribs, you know how it is. You've got to have a bib. You've got to pretty much have a head to toe. I mean, the coleslaw and all those potatoes and rib. I mean, juice was everywhere. In the midst of all that, they, uh, after they had cleaned it all up, went out to the car, realized he had left his key somewhere. He looked for his keys. He went back to the table, looked for his keys, and then he realized he had dumped his keys with all of that leftover greasy ribs and junk. He had dumped it into the garbage. And uh, his friends looked at him. He looked at them. He realized there's nobody else was going to go dumpster diving but him. He had to go. And so there he was. He took the lid off of that trash can. He started moving around all those greasy old uh, ribs there and all the junk and all the slime, all the coleslaw he was putting. He couldn't there. And finally, he saw his keys, grabbed them. He put them up there, and he realized there he was. He was, his arms were just covered with grease and slime and coleslaw juice and saliva, and, uh, and yet he had found his precious keys. Being a pastor, it just dawned on him, and he didn't mean any disrespect, but he said, you know what? That's my God. My God is a dumpster diving God. There I am. I was so wicked. I was so filthy. I was in the sins of this world. And then God reached down in the, in the dumpster of this world as something precious to him. And he found me by his grace. And thank God he's a dumpster diving God. I read that. I laughed. I said, man, that is so true. And I will say amen. I'm one of those publicans. I'm one of those uh, harlots. I'm one of those that really ran from God. All of us run from God. Thank God He runs us down. And when you receive the gospel, when you repent of sin, you can have eternal life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.